0: as those who are able to please stand for the first lesson, it comes from the book to the Romans, the letter to the Romans. It's in chapter 2 of the first 16 verses. Listen now to the Word of God. And therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet you do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance but by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he will repay according to each one's deeds. To those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight but the doers of the law who will be justified. When Gentiles who do do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secrets of all This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
1: Our second lesson comes from Matthew chapter 7. As we continue in our series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, invite all those who are able to stand for the reading of God's Word out of solidarity with Christians around the world. Listen now to what the Spirit has to say to the church today. Do not judge, so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the splinter in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the splinter out of your eye, while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. This is the Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Will you pray with me? God, You are the Word that became flesh, Jesus the Christ. That revealed to us who You are. And so as we, Your people, are gathered, would You speak anew and afresh that we might be made more like Your Word, more like You. That we might serve You in the world. We ask this through Your Name Jesus the Christ, the risen, the reigning, the Lord. Amen. Well, we heard in the letter to the Romans, chapter 2, uh, verse 16, in my opinion, what might be the scariest verse in all of Scripture. Now, in the Old Testament, there's some pretty uh, harrowing passages, but this verse, I think, kind of takes the cake. Let me read it again, and maybe, maybe I'm the only one who thinks it's scary. Uh, On the day when according to my gospel, God through Jesus Christ will judge the secret, say that again, the secret thoughts of all. Okay, I'm terrified. Are you terrified? Right? Uh, if you're like me, When you travel or uh, when you find yourself in an airport or uh, when we, uh, when Joy and I like to travel, we love to find a park, right? And you sit down and what do you do? You people watch, right? But people watching is just an excuse to judge people, right? This is what we do, right? Somebody walks by, man, her skirt is way too short or that guy is so obnoxious or I cannot believe those parents would let those kids act that way, right? Wait, God knows all that before we say it, right? I mean, this is terrifying because if you're like me, you've judged some people, right? This is what we do. We judge. And the reality is that we haven't just, we don't just judge people. We also have been judged, right? For what we've worn, for where we're from, or who our parents are for the school that we went to or didn't go to. If we're honest, we've been on both sides of the aisle, right? We have judged and we have been judged. Now most of the time, these are just internal thoughts, right? Things that kind of go through our mind. And they never really make their way out into the light of day. But still this criticism, this condemnation reveals our arrogance. And the world in which we live today, believe it or not, hates this. Right? Hates this kind of judgment. We hear phrases like, don't judge me. right? You don't know me. You can't judge me. In fact, there's a pop song uh, by an artist named Ariana Grande. She's got several songs on the radio. She has a song called You Don't Know Me. And the chorus goes like this I don't need to live by your rules. You don't control me until you've walked a mile in my shoes. You don't know me. And I know, I know, I know you don't like it. You don't, you don't, you don't know where I've been. It's my life, so truth be told. I see you thinking, but there's just one thing, dear. And you think you know, but you don't have no idea. You think you know me, but there's more to see. Right? That's our culture. That's our society. You can't judge until you know someone. And yet, I think if we're honest, we we resonate with these words, right? Because we don't like it when we've been judged. We don't like it when folks think things about us that are untrue or unfounded. And our passage of scripture this morning is often used when we begin talking about judgment, right? Well, Jesus said, don't judge, so it must be right. But I think the question is what does Jesus really mean when he says, don't judge, lest you be judged? And we've been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, going all the way back to before Lent or the first week of Lent. And to understand this passage, we have to put it in its context, right? How many of you have enjoyed a good thriller movie? But maybe you walked in in the last half an hour of the movie? doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, right? The movie isn't very good unless you see the whole thing. The sixth sense doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you've seen the whole thing, right? So too the Sermon on the Mount. I can't believe I just talked about the Sermon on the Mount is related to the sixth sense, but whatever, I guess that's what happens sometimes. But it's true, right? You have to understand the whole thing. So to understand why Jesus is talking about judgment here, we got to go all the way back to the beginning. The Sermon on the Mount starts by Jesus calling the disciples to come and to follow me and I will make you fishers of people. That's where this whole thing gets started. And then Jesus sits down and He begins teaching them. The disciples. Now there happens to be a crowd around them, but it's for the disciples. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a quote by him is on the cover of your bulletin this morning. He will talk about the Sermon on the Mount as the blueprint for the Christian life. In fact, his entire book, The Cost of Discipleship, what does it mean to follow Jesus is pretty much a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Because this... Is the heart of discipleship. This is what it means to be a Christian. So Jesus begins teaching. It's the largest section of teaching in all of the Gospels. Jesus teaches in other places, but this is the largest single chunk, single block of teaching. It's three chapters long. And how does he start? He begins with where we spent all of Lent the Beatitudes. Do you remember those? If you were in a Lenten small group, you should know them really well, right? You spent week after week looking at them individually. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus gives us an example of this new way of living, this new way of being called discipleship. What does it mean to follow me? It means to care about the things that God cares about. It means to see the world through a new lens, the lens of the Beatitudes. And then Jesus moves on and he reminds the disciples that they are salt and they are light because we live our Christian life where, in the context of the world, we're not hidden away, but we're out in reality. And so we're to be salt, we're to be light. Because that's where life happens in the world. We work. We have families. We go to school. We make mistakes. We have friends. We do silly things. Right? We do it in the context of real life. We're to be salt. We're to be light. So how do we be salt? How do we be light? Jesus continues talking about what the Christian life looks like by talking about the law. And we looked at these uh, interesting passages. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Do you remember these? You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemy. Jesus takes the Old Testament law and he ups the ante. He says to be a Christian is not just about keeping the law for the law's sake. No, being a Christian is about being different. It's about being more. This new way of living yet again. And so all of chapter 5 is a discussion on what it means to be a Christian in the world. How do we relate to those around us? And then chapter 6, Jesus turns the page. Because we live in the world, yes, but we have a relationship with our Father who is in heaven. And God knows what we're doing all the time. And so Jesus begins to teach about the internal Spiritual life. When you give money, don't give money like the hypocrites do, making a big show of things. When you fast, don't pour oil on your head so everyone knows that you're fasting, right? When you pray, don't make lots of noise and say, look at me, look at me, I'm praying, aren't I awesome, right? We do this. This is what's funny about this passage is that uh, Jesus wrote this so many years ago, and yet we in the church, we still do this, right? Right? Jesus is reminding us that God knows our hearts and that our life with the Father, our internal spiritual life needs to be ordered a certain way. Just like our life in the world needs to be ordered a certain way. And then Jesus reminds us that because God is God and that He will care for us, that we don't have to worry about anything. So don't run after the things of the world which moth and rust will destroy. But put your treasure where? In heaven. And don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of itself because God is still God. God will provide what is needed. So don't worry. In fact, there's this beautiful imagery of the flowers in the field, right? And the birds in the air. And God knows their needs. And how much more will your Father take care of you? The beloved child. And then chapter 7. This beautiful imagery of the birds and the flowers. Don't worry. Be happy. It's going to be fine, right? Don't judge. It's a really strange transition, right? Well, what is Jesus doing? What is He getting at here? Well, see, it would be really easy for us, Right? We now know as disciples, we know how our life ought to be ordered in the world, how we're to live in relationship with one another in chapter 5. Now we know how we're supposed to live in our relationship with the Heavenly Father, right? The vertical relationship with God, chapter 6. And it would be really easy for us as disciples to think that we've got it all figured out, right? That's what chapter 7 is all about. Be careful. Just because you're a disciple doesn't mean you've got it all figured out. It's really easy to see other people's stuff, to call it out. But how well, Jesus is asking us this morning, do you know your own faults, your own sin, your own brokenness? Because judgment, when we judge other people, it's never about them, right? It's always about us. Uh, There's a a famous TV show called Seinfeld. Do we have any Seinfeld fans, people that enjoyed Seinfeld throughout uh, the 90s, right? Uh, Well, Seinfeld, if you're unfamiliar, is a show about a comedian. It's a show about this comedian and his friends. It's really a show about nothing. That's kind of the premise of the show, uh, that nothing really ever happens. But... George Costanza is is in this show and George is having this conversation with, at the time, one of his girlfriends. Her name is Gwen. Kind of a a famous part of the show and it goes something like this. So they're sitting down at this restaurant where they meet all the time and George's girlfriend, Gwen, looks at him and says, George, uh, I'm sorry, George. George looks at her and says, I don't understand. Things were going so great. What happened? That's more of a Jerry Seinfeld than a George Costanza. Sorry. Something must have happened. And then Gwen says to George, it's not you, it's me. Does anybody remember this part of the show, right? And then George is just, he can't believe it. He says, you're giving me the it's not you, it's me routine? I invented the it's not you, it's me routine. Nobody tells me it's not me. If it's anybody, it's me. All right, George, it's you. Well, you're right, it is me. I was just trying to. I know what you were trying to do, George says. Nobody does it better than me. I'm sure you do it very well. Yes, well, unfortunately, you will never get the chance to find out. Right? And so they have this conversation. Then George goes back to the apartment. He's talking with Jerry. And Jerry says, "She, it's not you, it's me. That's your routine, George. George says, I guess the word is out, right? So George has this routine, it's not you, it's me. And it's his way of breaking up with girls, right? It's his way of not dealing with the fact that it's just not a good fit. It's a a way of not talking about them. Now for George, it's, it's an excuse. But the reality is that this passage, this passage on judgment, it's not you, it's me. That's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, do you know what's going on in yourself? Are you aware of yourself? Do you know who you are? Because when we pass judgment on others, really we're just talking about ourselves. If you gossip, I don't know, maybe this isn't true, but if you gossip, when you walk into a room and you see a bunch of people in a corner talking, what do you think they're doing? Gossiping, right? They might just be talking about the weather, but you're viewing them through your lens of gossip. Does that make sense? Oh, when I was a child, I used to lie. Uh, a lot. Does anybody else in here lie when they were a child? Okay. Okay. If you didn't raise your hand, you're lying. So now you can raise your hand that you've lied, right? Okay. We've all lied. Uh, in particular, I used to lie about practicing the piano. My mom uh, is a piano teacher. She used to make us take piano, and we had a lesson every Friday, and we had to practice every single day for a half an hour. And so, mom would. I come home from school. Mom would say, "Nathan, did you practice piano?" I'd say, uh, "Yes." Right. But I had it. This happened a lot um, uh, on all, many occasions. And for the rest of the day, where I had told that lie, how did I view my mom, right? What my relationship with my mom was predicated through that lie, right? Now I began to see everything. Oh, is she going to find out, right? And it's all about I'm just caught up in this lie. And so I begin to judge other people through my own stuff. Judgment is always about ourselves. There's a story, uh, kind of an old parable of sorts about a man, and he's moving. And he goes to this small town, and he finds this farmer uh, at this gas station, and he says, Farmer, I'm moving, and I wanted to know what kind of people are in your town. I'm thinking about uh, staying here for a while. The farmer says, Well, what kind of people are in the town you came from? He says, Oh, they were terrible people. Terrible people. They were liars. They said all kinds of mean things about me. Uh, I just hate them. It was a terrible place. The farmer says, Well, you're not going to want to move here. The same kinds of people are here, Right? Later that same day, another man comes through town. He's moving as well. He sees that same farmer and he asks the farmer a question. He says, Farmer, what kind of people are in this town? I'm thinking about moving here. The farmer says, Well, what kind of people are in the town you came from? And The man says, Oh, they were wonderful people. Compassionate, kind, caring. I'm really going to miss them. And the farmer said, Same kind of people here. Pull up and stay a while. Because the reality is we see people how we see ourselves. We treat others how we want to be treated, right? This is what is happening here. How we judge others depends on what we know about ourselves. The measure we give is the measure we will receive. And the reality is, at the end of the day, it's not our job to judge anyway, right? Christ is the judge. And when we sit on the judgment seat of others, we take God's place. We say week after week after week in the Apostles' Creed, we remind ourselves of the fact that God is the judge, right? We say Christ will judge the living and the dead, right? Remember this that we say every week? Just to remind ourselves that that is Christ's rightful place, not ours. The Heidelberg Catechism, another one of our confessions, puts it this way. In fact, its commentary is of the Apostles' Creed. Question 52 asks this: What comfort is it to you, Christian, that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? The answer: In all my sorrow and persecution I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from Me. He will cast all His his and My enemies into everlasting condemnation, but He will take Me and all His chosen ones to Himself into heavenly joy and glory. Friends, this is the good news of the Gospel, right? It's God's job to judge. We don't have to do it. In fact, Christ isn't just the judge. Christ has taken our place. God's uh, Judgment of us, friends, is no, right? We are all sinners. That is the judgment. But because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, that no has become a yes. Because when God sees us, God doesn't see us, God sees Christ. The judge, as Karl Barth would say, the judge that is judged in our place and in our stead. Christ didn't have to do that. But He did. And what if we began to see people through that lens? The lens of God's gift of grace. What if we began to see people how they could be instead of how they are. What if we began to see people through the lens of what Christ has done and not through our own self-righteousness? See, when we judge others, we reveal our ingratitude for God's grace. This is why it comes on the heels of do not worry. Because all that we have is a gift. And if all that we have is a gift... What right do we have? We're not the judge. Now, Jesus is not saying that we don't ever use wisdom, that we don't ever use discernment. Um, In fact, there's this parable at the end here, or this little saying, this proverb, if you will do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample you underfoot and turn and maul you. It's a very strange parable. Um, And commentators have lots of thoughts on it. But I think what Jesus is doing is he's giving us the other side of the coin, right? On the one hand, we're to not judge, but on the other hand, we are to use discernment, wisdom, discretion, right? You don't give a dog holy meat. I mean, Jesus is talking about meat that is set apart for a sacrifice, right? It has a holy purpose. Well, what's a dog going to do with meat? It's going to eat it. It's going to devour it. You don't give something that is meaningful, costly, a pearl to a pig because a pig just wants food and it can't eat a pearl. It doesn't have anything to do with a pig. So it's going to trample it. And so too in life, I think this happens a lot, right? Where we give something away that is meaningful, that has value to somebody who doesn't deserve it, right? Right? someone that's not worthy of it. And what happens is that it comes back, like Jesus says, to bite us. Or it's used against us. And so Jesus is cautioning us to have wisdom to use discernment. Not to judge that person, because goodness knows they need God's grace just as much as I do, but I don't give them what is valuable. Does that make sense? It's kind of an odd passage, but it's kind of two sides of the same coin. This is what Jesus is talking about. We can have discernment for who people are in the moment while still seeing them for who they could become in Christ. And at the end of the day, this entire passage is simply calling us to a deeper self-understanding, a deeper understanding of our own need for God's grace in our life? Do I know that I need God? Do I know what the log in my own eye is so that I can invite you, the community, to help me deal with it? The reality is we need to have, we need to have humility to realize our own need for grace. And when we do this, it changes our posture. Of how we relate to one another. David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons uh, wrote a book in 2007. Uh, they did a study on what outsiders in our society think about the church, and then they asked the same questions to people inside the church. Uh, it's kind of a dated study, but I think it's still relevant in a lot of ways. Um, particularly, they looked at 16 to 29 year olds. And the book uh, where they kind of talk about the study is called Unchristian What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. In doing their research, they found that many non Christians like Jesus but are not interested in the church. And this connects to a whole bunch of other research that has shown that people today are religious or spiritual but not religious. Has anyone ever heard that term before? Right? I'm spiritual, but not religious. I like Jesus, just not the church. In fact, there's a book called I Like Jesus, Just Not the Church. What's fascinating about the study is that one of the things that young people think about the church, again, this is a little bit dated, but I think it's still true, is that it's judgmental. 87% of outsiders thought the church was judgmental. But 50% of people inside the church thought it was judgmental. So that says something, I think. 70% of outsiders thought the church was insensitive to others, while 29% inside the church thought the church was insensitive to others. And the authors begin to discuss this kind of perceived judgmentalism within the church. Listen to what they say. Judgmentalism doesn't stop to ask why people do the things they do and why they are the way they are. That is, they just don't care. Judgmental minds minds see everything in terms of rules kept or rules broken. A judgmental heart maintains the us-them dichotomy, keeping people at a distance, holding people is in contempt, is easier when we just lump them into categories. The core belief of a judgmental spirit is I'm right and I'm better. It's true, the worldview of young generations in America has shifted. And still, an entire generation of churched and main, many formally churched young people doubt the motives of the church. And while they are judging the church... Um, it's our attitudes that are stiff-arming people. Shouldn't we start sympathetically inviting them into God's fellowship? If we think we're better, we need to revisit amazing grace. Arrogance is the charge. Are you guilty of it? I know I've been. End quote. Pretty much what people outside the church are saying is I like the message just don't like the way you're saying it. It's about posture. It's about humility. Do I know my own need for God's grace? Because if I know my own need for God's grace, the way in which I interact with other people becomes really different. Because I see the log in my own eye. So when I come to you and I talk to you about something that's hard, I've dealt with my own stuff, and I'm, I'm honest about that. It's a very different conversation. And the reality is that the world is desperately in need of amazing grace. It's the grace that we hear about week after week as we gather for worship. The good news that Jesus Christ has done something for us. That we are no longer far off. That we are not aliens, but we are called beloved children of God. We were once strangers. We are now family. This is the good news. And this is the grace. This is the news that the world needs to hear. Not all the ways that they're wrong. We need to be a people who are marked not by arrogance, but by humility. Not by being right, but by being merciful. We need to be a community that is marked by the fruit of the Spirit, which is a gift given by the Spirit. Nothing that we can do of our own power. See, when we judge others, we reveal our own need for God. And we take God's place. May we be a people who let God do God's job. Because our job, friends, it's big enough. Our job of telling the world the story of who God is and what God has done. That's plenty. Let us be a people that are humble, grateful. Let us be a people that sing the song Amazing Grace with our lives. Amen.